0: I want to talk about this book this morning. It's a very important book, amen? Man, 60% of you think it's an important book. That's good. Hey, this book also is full of a bunch of really crazy stuff, weird stuff, hard to understand stuff, amen? There is some crazy stuff in this book. This book says, don't eat shrimp, don't eat pork, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. What? What? How many of you, be honest, how many of you got had bacon this morning? Yeah. Okay, so do you not believe this book? This book says, on two separate occasions, by the Apostle Paul, women are to remain silent in the church. I do not permit a woman to speak in church, and I've been doing some observing of my own this morning, and I've been seeing some of you ladies talk. I actually tested a few people, and I said, good morning, and they said, good morning back what do we make of what Paul says? Well, we're obviously not doing it. This book talks about how God kills the firstborn child of every Egyptian family. And then if that's not crazy enough, he says, and all of the firstborn of the cattle as well. What? This book is full of a bunch of crazy stuff. And so many people think you're nuts for believing it. There's websites dedicated to this. There's billboards that are rented out. There are bumper stickers made that say the fastest way to become an atheist is to read the Bible because it is full of ridiculous things. What do we make of this? How do we understand what Scripture says? How do we not look like hypocrites because we're talking in church and we're eating bacon, but our Bible, our holy book says not to do those things? This morning, we're going to look at a hard saying of Jesus. Jesus says some crazy things in the Gospels. We're going to look at one of these passages, and what we're going to do then is talk about how do we go about understanding Scripture? How do we study our Bibles well? And we're going to develop some questions to ask for that. We're going to ask those questions about this passage, and then we're going to see if we can understand what Jesus is saying in light of what we've discovered. Does it make sense where we're going? Okay, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, or on your apps. I remember when I started preaching, I used to hear a lot of rustling of pages, and now you can't hear phones. So I hope you're on, I hope you have some form of scripture, and you're looking at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and he said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. What? Let's focus in on that last statement. A guy says, hey, Jesus, I I really want to follow you, but I got to bury my dad first. And Jesus says, no, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. Really? What is he talking about? Is Is Jesus having a bad day here? What is going on in this passage? This doesn't make a lot of sense with other things Jesus says. It doesn't make a lot of sense with what other Bible passages say. You remember going way back when God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, 12, he says this. "'Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord gives you.'" Fast forward 1,400 years, and you've got Jesus and this guy, literally in the land God gave them that he promised, where they're supposed to honor their father and mother in the land, and Jesus is telling this guy, "'Don't honor your father.'" What? Another passage in Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, says, "'If a man's committed a sin worthy of death,' And he's put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day. Old Testament law was that even criminals who capital punishment was enacted on get buried the same day. They don't hang on the tree overnight. Immediate burial. So Jesus is telling this guy to let his dad's corpse hang out. Let the dead bury the dead, whatever that means. Don't honor your father and follow me. How do we make sense of these types of passages in Scripture? Have you read some of this stuff and gone, huh? What, what does this mean? Well, it means something. And in order to understand it, we have to do a good job at studying the Bible. Uh, this book's not a fortune cookie. Do you know that? It's not a fortune cookie. And so often we treat it like it is because we crack it open, we read a verse, we feel good about it, and we go on with our day. But this book's not a fortune cookie. This book is not a book. It's a collection of 66 books that were written over a 35 or a 1,500 period of time by many different authors in many different places in many different cultures. And it takes some time to study it, not just to crack it open and feel good. When I was a kid, I remember I would do this all the time. Lord, direct me to what you have for me in your word today. And I go like this. Oink. Then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance. That's literally what this says. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) That's very—what does that mean? What is going on? Why does Leviticus 25, 25 say that? We need to study Scripture, not treat it like it's a fortune cookie. But there's some difficulties in interpreting it. One of the difficulties is chronological distance. The newest edition of the Bible— The latest thing written was written by John somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. We're a couple thousand years past that, and that's the newest stuff we've got. The oldest stuff in here was written around 1400 BC by Moses. Man, that is a long time ago. Chronological distance, you think some things have changed? Yes, some things have changed, a few things at least, right? We are at a disadvantage because we're not there, we're not back then. We also have a problem because there's geographical distance. This book originated in the Middle East. Parts of it were written in Europe. We're not in the Middle East and we're not in Europe. Geographical distance. One one of the things that's really important to notice is if you read the Bible, New Testament or Old Testament, all over the place, it talks about, and we went up to Jerusalem and we went up to Jerusalem. And then a lot of our Bibles have these maps in the back, you know, that show the Holy Land. And I'm saying, okay, they were in Galilee and they went up to Jerusalem. But Galilee's in the north, and then they went south to Jerusalem. (gasps) The Bible's lying to me. It's not. Uh, Jerusalem was a higher elevation than most of the places. So wherever you were coming from, you were going up to it because you were ascending. It's kind of important to know that geographically, or you could think the Bible's a fairy tale, right? Geographical distance is a difficulty we've got to overcome in understanding Scripture. There's also linguistic distance, most of you speak english right some of you spanish some of you maybe studied french some of you german a lot of you do not speak aramaic hebrew or greek that's the original languages that these 66 books were written in and so we've got a linguistic distance and in addition to that we have a cultural distance these books record multiple distinct people groups in multiple distinct cultures in multiple distinct situations. And we crack it open like a fortune cookie to see what I can get devotionally out of it in my two minutes that I give to it every morning, right? It's not cutting it. And no wonder there's so much confusion about what this book talks about in our culture, but also in our churches. So when we come to study this book, there are some questions that we need to ask. The first question that you need to ask when you're studying a book of the Bible is who wrote this? Who's the author? When Paul wrote to the Romans, Paul's the author. Because he tells us, right? It's really nice. He's I, Paul, the apostle. Okay, great. I'm reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's probably important to know that Moses wrote those. And it actually helps me time date it, right? Because I know when Moses lived. He lived about 1446 is when the Exodus happened. 1400 is the conquest happened. He was born probably 1526, if the Bible's accurate with the years of his life. Man, what was going on in the world at that time? Where's the guy from? Oh, he's a Jew, but he was abducted into Egyptian culture and was trained in Egyptian schools. And he probably spoke five languages. It's important to know who's writing this stuff because it gives us information on maybe where they're coming from. Another question we need to ask is who's the original audience? When Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, who did he write it to? This isn't a trick question. The Corinthians. It's not just a clever title. That's who it was to. Isn't that awesome how we named that? When he wrote the book of Romans, he wrote it to the Romans. When he wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote it to the Philippians. Who did he write the book of Galatians to? Trick question. The Galatians. But did you know that Galatia is an area, a province, not a city? So that letter was meant to travel around in this area. It'd be like writing to the state of Arizona or to Maricopa County. It's probably important to know those types of things because if we understand who the original audience is, maybe it gives us a little more information about the book. The book of Philippians, written to the Philippians. Philippi was a city, and it was a sovereign state of Rome. It was Roman soil. It was a consulate area. And so even though you're not in Italy, this is still Italy. This is Rome, and you have full privileges of Roman citizenship there. And Roman citizenship was a big deal to the people in Philippi because you couldn't be crucified if you're a Roman citizen. Uh, You had good tax breaks. You had a whole bunch of perks for being a Roman citizen. Knowing that about Philippi is important when you read the book of Philippians because Paul mentions citizenship over and over and over again in that book because he knows that it was important to them. And he's saying, listen, our citizenship's not here. It's in heaven. We've got a a greater citizenship than even the best citizenship the world has to offer right now. It helps us to understand what's being written. Another thing that we should be asking is what is the occasion a lot of people say what's the context going on around the story we're reading or what's the context of the book we're reading or what's the big purpose what's the purpose statement in the book we're looking at Go back to Matthew chapter 8 because this is a question we should ask when it comes to Jesus saying this thing about his this guy not being able to bury his dad The story right before our text for today says this Matthew 8:14 When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. Okay, time out. So Jesus, you are cool with healing Peter's mother-in-law so that Peter can leave home and follow you and not worry about what's going on. But when this other guy wants to bury his dad, no way. That doesn't make any sense. Why is it okay for you to heal Peter's mother-in-law but then not let this guy bury his dad? What is going on here? When we read all that there is in the story, all that there is before and after it, we can start to come to some conclusions about what's happening. We need to look at the occasion, the context. Another thing that's important to think through is what's the cultural situation? What's the historical context going on? Uh, You do not live in first century Israel, (laughs) You don't even speak proper English. Did you know that? <laughs> like we, we get so acclimated to our cultures and we forget that people were different at different times in different places. But we've got to research, we've got to understand what was going on back then. I want to give you an example. Uh, so there's a law in Arizona. Are you ready for this? Don't break this law today. Please, I beg you, do not go out and attempt to do this because you could get arrested. It is on the books in our state of Arizona that it's illegal to allow your donkey to sleep in a bathtub. I'm not kidding. It's illegal to this day. How many of you own donkeys? This is the fourth service I've done. Not one person in our church owns a donkey thus far. Oh wait, there's one. All right, hey, there we go. How many bathtubs do you let your donkeys sleep in? Zero, because you're law abiding citizens. That's why, right? It's true. Why can't you let, why is it illegal in Arizona? That's a stupid law. Like, come on. How ridiculous is that? It's not pertinent to us. Most of us don't own donkeys. My bathtub's on the second story of my house, so that would be a really tough sell to my wife to let my donkey go upstairs, into our room, into the bathroom. Why is that a law? See, and we we read scripture like this, though. Shrimp? I can't eat shrimp? That's stupid. Can't eat pork? That's dumb. The Bible's full of ridiculous things just like a donkey bathtub law. But then not we study the context of where these things came from, the historical situation, and it brings to light, maybe we would have done the same thing in that situation. In 1924, up near Kingman, there was a man who owned donkeys. And there was an uh, uh, abandoned bathtub on his property. And one of the donkeys liked to nap in it. It would crawl in, it would bed down, and it would take a nap in the bathtub all the time. That was the favorite place of this donkey to sleep. Well, the dam broke near this little town, and a flash flood happened while the donkey was asleep in the bathtub, and it washed this donkey through town. Now, the townspeople were freaking out, and donkeys are expensive, so they all went to help this man retrieve his donkey. And they, you know, eventually got the bathtub, got it to solid ground, got the donkey out, saved him. And after that, they all said, man, that was rough. (laughs) That took manpower, it was dangerous, people could have lost their life, it was expensive, it took us time, and the city of Kingman lobbied the state to make it illegal to allow donkeys to sleep in bathtubs. It makes sense! It makes sense! And if I was in that culture where more people owned donkeys and they were allowed to sleep in bathtubs and there were flash floods, maybe I would have done the exact same thing understanding the historical context of what's going on can help us to understand what scripture is saying another question we need to ask when it comes to scripture is what does it say and i know that sounds so juvenile and simple and it is but you would be shocked at how many people skip over this you have to ask the question what does it say before you ask the question what does it mean What are the words there? Don't tell me your theological disposition and then force that onto words that aren't there. What words are there? What does it say first? Then, after we've done this, all of this, we can say, okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean? And once we decide what it means, not what it means to me, I don't care about what it means to you, I care what it means. Once we do that, we can say, how does that apply to my life? How does that apply to my life? If I said this statement to you, most of you will understand it. I laced up my chucks, I slammed the door, I got in my Altima, I googled pep boys, and I found that the closest one was on the 101 and the 51. You know what I just said. I said I tied my shoes... I went out of my house, I got into my automobile, I got my phone out, I got on the internet, I searched for the nearest tire store, I found the location to be on the 101 and the 51 freeway. You know what I'm talking about. Even if you don't know what the 51 is, you can deduce it's a directional term. Fast forward 500 years to some dude who speaks Italian and he hears that phrase in English. He's probably going to have a tough time deciphering what I said. He's going to have to understand what is an ultima, right? Is that a disease? Is that a sickness? Why is he getting into it? Chucks, what are chucks? Googled, right? We understand it because we're here. We're now. But people in the future would have a difficult time with it. Most of the history of the world wouldn't understand that sentence I just said. But you do because you're here. We've got to understand the culture, the language, who wrote it, who they wrote it to, the context, what does it say, and then what does it mean. It's very important to study in Scripture, but it takes work. But this book's not a fortune cookie, and it deserves our time, and it deserves our attention. So what I want to do is I want to look at the cultural situation, the historical context of burial practices in ancient Israel— Because maybe that'll help us to understand what Jesus is saying to this guy about burying his dad. Make sense? There's three things that we know about burial practices in Israel. The first is that they practiced immediate burial. Immediate burial. Now, one of the reasons for this, and this is a chronological distance thing, is that you know they didn't have refrigeration, right? Right? We have refrigeration, so we don't have to bury people immediately. We can wait a little while because we can put them in morgues and keep them cool, and they don't rot quickly. They didn't have that back then. And they also lived in a place in the world where it was a more warm climate most of the year. You don't want dead bodies lying around without refrigeration in a warm climate. It's unsanitary. The second thing is that they have all these rituals about uncleanliness laws and touching dead bodies, and so your religion was impacted by just allowing dead bodies to be around as well. It's also dishonoring to allow people to rot and not give them a proper burial. And we have examples all through scripture that the Jews practiced immediate burial. We saw that in Deuteronomy 23, but we also see that in the New Testament. Um, In Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter about how much money they're giving as an offering. Uh, It says Ananias lies and he's struck down dead. And and this isn't a giving talk, don't worry. (laughs) But uh, that's funny, it's a joke because they were giving, lying about giving. That's fine. The 11 o'clock, they're going to love it. Um, But he's dead, he dies on the spot. And then it says that young men came in, covered him, took him out and immediately buried him because that's what they did. Same thing said of Sapphira when she comes in. She was struck dead. The young men came in, carried her out, and immediately buried her because that is the custom of the time in that place of the world. The second thing we know about Jewish burial practices is that they would take the body, they would wash it, they would wrap it in burial garments uh, around the body and then a different one around the head, the head covering. They would put spices and perfumes on it to prevent the, the smell And then they would place it in a tomb. Uh, We see this happen with Jesus. uh, But we also see this happen with Lazarus. You remember when Jesus goes to his friend Mary Martha's and and their brother Lazarus has died. And he's going to raise him from the dead. And he says, roll the stone away from the tomb. And they roll it away. And it says everyone gets sick because the smell is just so disgusting, right? The perfume isn't working anymore. That's what that's saying. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And it says, Lazarus came out. But... His body was still bound and wrapped up in the burial garments. And his head was still covered and wrapped up in the head covering. And Jesus says, unbind him, let him out. And I always imagined him being like a mummy. And that's because when I was a kid, my children's Bible had a drawing of Lazarus looking like a mummy. And so that's what I always thought of. But then as you study this, I'm like, I don't think he was a mummy. Because it's not like they wrapped him to mummify them. Jesus was wrapped in a long sheet, right? And bound up tight. Lazarus is probably, like, more like a cocoon than a mummy, right? I wonder, did he roll out? And everyone's like, ha-ha! And he's like, let him out, he's alive! I don't know. But we know that the Jews practiced washing, burial wrapping, and then using spices and perfumes before they placed them in the tomb. The third thing we know about Jewish burial practices, and this comes from archaeology, is that Jews during this time period in history used what was called an ossuary. An ossuary box. Uh, these boxes were made out of limestone. We found hundreds and hundreds of them in Jerusalem and the Israel area. They started coming on the scene around 100 BC and then they weren't in Jerusalem anymore after 70 AD because that's when the Romans destroyed the city and people didn't live there anymore. But for this time period, ossuary boxes were used for burying Jews. So these boxes were usually, uh, from the hundreds we found, they vary in size from like 20 to 30 inches long, 12 to 16 wide, uh, 15 to 18 high. Uh, they're big enough to fit the longest bone in the human body, which is the femur. And so they place that in there because it's the longest bone. After they would immediately bury somebody, wash them, wrap them, spice them, they'd leave them in the tomb for a year to rot. And their flesh would all decay off the bones. After that happened, they'd go back in, And they would collect the bones and they'd put them in an ossuary box and then put them in their final resting place in the other part of the tomb with all their ancestors' ossuary boxes. Now, we don't see this prescribed in Scripture. We don't see people doing this in Scripture. But it was a popular cultural tradition during the time of Jesus. (coughs) I want to show you a couple of famous ossuary boxes. This one is Caiaphas's ossuary box. Um, It's very beautiful, ornately decorated, which tells us that he was an important, rich person from the area. It dates from somewhere between 46 to 70 AD. They found it outside Jerusalem in a tomb with other ossuary boxes. And inside the ossuary box are the remains of six different people, one of whom was a 60-year-old man at the time of his death. On the side of the box, it says Joseph Caiaphas. This is the guy who made Jesus stand trial before him at the Sanhedrin. We have the bones of a man who made Jesus stand on trial. The man who turned Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. Caiaphas is also talked about in Acts where Peter and John are preaching and healing people. Caiaphas has them thrown in prison and then they stand trial before him and he says, stop teaching about the resurrection. Stop teaching about Jesus. And they say, listen, we can't do that, (laughs) right? Whether it's right to listen to you or to God, eh, we're gonna go with God on this one. And it says that the pressure from the community, the political pressure was so much that Caiaphas didn't want to put them back in jail or to kill them because he thought there'd be an uprising, so he just lets them go. We have this guy's burial box and his bones. Another famous ossuary box is this one. Not as pretty, which means this guy wasn't as rich or as important in the Jerusalem uh, area. This is called James's ossuary. Uh, This popped onto the scene on the antiquities market in 2002. Nobody knew where it came from. It's just there. A collector has it. So in 2002, everyone's like, this is a forgery. This thing's too good to be true. This is bogus. Well, for 18 years, they've been studying this, and they've concluded that it's legitimate. This box, the limestone that it's made of, comes from a specific area in Jerusalem. They know where it's from the particulates that have assembled themselves on the outside the dirt they know is from jerusalem and that it was from inside a tomb and that this thing in order to accumulate those particulates had to be inside a tomb for a very long time and there's also a carving on the front of it. you maybe see this inscription right here and it's hard to read because it's small but it's also in aramaic so it's difficult to make out But what the inscription says, people thought, no way. This was scratched into this box way later. This isn't original. They've concluded it is original. And what it says in Aramaic is, Yaakov bar Yosef aku Yeshua, which translated is James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Whoa. Whoa, wait a second. How many people were named Jacob or James in... uh, the new testament a ton of people how many people were named joseph a ton of people how many people were named yeshua a ton of people <laughs> right so we go okay maybe this isn't that well here's the thing there are these people out there and i like to call them super nerds and i'm very thankful for super nerds because they study like crazy the super nerds have done name statistical analysis of this inscription And they have said, okay, with how many people we know would have been named Jacob or James, with how many people we know would have been named Joseph, with how many people we know would have been named Yeshua, what are the odds, what's the analytical analysis, right, of a James having a dad named Joseph and a brother named Jesus? So they're studying this. What they found was out of all the hundreds of ossuary boxes we've uncovered, there's only two that mention somebody's brother. Because let's be honest, are you going to put your brother's name on your tombstone? What? Why would you? It doesn't matter, right? Typically, dad, okay, it makes sense. Brother, unless your brother is somebody really, really, really important, you wouldn't put them on there. And that's why we only find two boxes with the brother mentioned. After all the analysis was done of the likelihood of these names being in this order at that time, they concluded there's probably only one person who would have had those names in that order during that time and it's jesus brother james who became the head of the church in jerusalem now there's a lot we can conclude from this the bible's accurate (laughs) the bible talks about real people in real places at real times doing real cultural things but for our study this morning what i want to point out to you is that ossuary boxes were in vogue during the time of jesus make sense The three practices, immediate burial, washing, wrapping, spicing, and ossuary boxes. Well, where'd this idea come from? Because the Jews don't practice this today. They didn't really practice it much after 70 AD. We find them in a few scattered places. But it's a real specific time period where this was happening. Kind of like eight tracks. When I say eight tracks, it means a real small period of time where people were using those, right? CDs, tapes, things like that. Laser disc. All of that stuff, it timestamps something, right? Where did ossuaries come from? Well, some people have said, okay, maybe they just needed more space. Like, and they couldn't stretch people out. They needed to consolidate, right? Because the tombs didn't have enough space. No, it's not true. There was a lot of space. The reason ossuary boxes became in vogue was because of theological development. At around 100 BC, we read rabbinical sources. And they started teaching this theology that... After you die, your flesh needs to rot off your bones for a year because your flesh is where sin is. There needs to be a purification process. And your soul during that time goes to the court of heaven and for one year your soul is on trial before God. But after that purification process, you are then led into actual heaven. It's like a Jewish purgatory idea. It's not biblical. It's not anywhere in scripture. But it's theology that had developed during this time period. And because of the theological development, the ossuary box business came into existence. And they said, well, hey, we need to put them in a special place after they've rotted because they're sin, yuck. And that's what they do. They leave them in a shallow grave that's built, like, like dug like two, three inches deep, like a little trench inside the family tomb. Or they put them on a a stone shelf. That's where Jesus was left, actually, is on a stone shelf, limestone shelf. And they let their body rot, go back a year later, put their bones in the box. Now, with all that in mind, I know that's a lot of background and you didn't come to church to learn Jewish burial practices, but you're here and you're stuck. What's the situation in Matthew 8? Let's read it again. Matthew 8, 21 through 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me to first go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. There's three options when it comes to how do we understand this. The first is that this guy's dad is not dead yet, okay? So what he's saying is, Jesus, me and my dad are in business together. He's kind of getting old and feeble. He doesn't see so well. I got to be around to help him. I'm the oldest son. And to honor my dad, I need to be with him. He's going to kick the bucket sometime. And after that, I need to bury him. But after that, I'm your man. (laughs) I'm in. I'll follow you, right? Now, this is a popular opinion with a lot of commentators. I don't find it convincing because this is an excuse the guy's giving for not following, right? Usually excuses are, are attempting to be a good excuse. Everybody pretty much could give this excuse. If your dad's alive, you could say this: "Oh, well, I gotta wait till my dad dies and bury him. I can't really follow you right now." Who knows how that? He's in good health. He's only forty-seven years old. Like I don't know. We'll see. It doesn't make a lot of sense. An excuse everyone can use isn't really a good excuse. It's like the dog ate my homework kind of thing. You go, Come on, not making a lot of sense. Option number two is that the man's father is dead, but he hasn't buried him yet. And that's how we read it, right? Because we think you're gonna bury him because they've died. Well, let's think about this. The first thing we know about Jewish burial customs is that they immediately buried people. So if this guy's dad's dead, what should he be doing? <laughs> he shouldn't be hanging out listening to Jesus talk. He should be at home, burying his dad. There's a whole ritual behind this. What they would do is if somebody died, they would mourn, they'd rend their clothes. They literally hired professional whalers to come and to mourn the dead. Then they would say their last respects, they'd put them on a stretcher, they'd carry them through town so everybody could know and pay their respects. On the way to bury them, they'd wash them, wrap them, spice them, and leave them in the tomb. If this guy's dad was dead, at this time, he should have been at home doing this, not talking to Jesus. Does that make sense? So I don't think his dad just died and he's going to bury them. Secondly, what does Jesus mean when he says, let the dead bury their own dead? What? That sounds crazy to me, right? What is, is, how do we even interpret what that means in this view? I don't know. And then why is Jesus in such a rush? He can't wait a couple hours for the guy to bury his dad? Like, sometimes he waits three days to go heal Lazarus, right? Why? What's the rush, Jesus? I don't know if that's what's going on here. The third option we have is that the man's father is dead and he's buried, but he's not put in his ossuary yet. He's honored his dad. He washed, he wrapped, he spiced. He laid him in the tomb for a year to rot And then he's going to go back a year later, collect the bones, put them in the box. So what he's saying is, listen, my dad just died two months ago, and I got to wait eight more or ten more months to go and to to put him in his final resting place in his ossuary box. And then Jesus says, you follow me, let the dead bury uh, their own dead. Okay, so what does this mean? In this view, it makes sense because the guys in a tomb— with other dead ancestors, at this time. And Jesus is saying, let the dead guys, let your dead ancestors bury their own dead. You come and follow me. You see, Jesus didn't adhere to bad theology. And this idea that there's Jewish purgatory isn't true. You notice Jesus wasn't put in an ossuary box. Remember this? (laughs) He wasn't put in one. He was put in the tomb, but he wasn't put in a box because he didn't decay. And he's saying, listen, the way to purification isn't by letting your flesh rot off your bones or standing in a heavenly court for a year waiting it. The way to purification is to trust in me. You follow me, and I'll show you. It's my righteousness that you need. It's my purification that you need. It's my work that you need. Not this bad theology about ossuary boxes. Let the dead ancestors you have bury their own dead. You come and follow me. You already honored your dad. This makes sense. This makes much more sense. And we don't have to jump through these weird twistings of Scripture. Sometimes people will say, well, what it means is let the spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. The problem is it doesn't say that. And one of our rules is what does it say before what does it mean? And it doesn't say that. Once we do the study, once we look at this, and again, it's hard work. It's not easy. It takes time. But the Bible's not a fortune cookie. And it should take us time. And we should show ourselves to be approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what Paul told Timothy. Study to show yourself an approved workman. We need to take the time. We need to be diligent. We need to press in. And when we do, we can understand Jesus isn't as harsh as he sounds. And this makes a lot of sense, kind of like a donkey floating in a bathtub. When we don't do the studying, we come up with bad ideas and bad theology. So, after we do the study, after we look through who wrote it, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, what the cultural context was, all of that, what does it mean? Then we come to how does this apply to my life? And I was thinking about this passage this week how does this apply to my life? And it hit me. Robbie, what cultural rituals are keeping you from following Jesus? Because isn't that the problem with this guy? He's got cultural standard, he's got cultural tradition that's keeping him from following the God of the universe. How stupid does that sound? And yet, it happens to all of us all the time. I came up with a list of a whole bunch of stuff. Sports, social media, entertainment, family, you know, the usual suspects when it comes to applying. And I was going to lay it out for you and explain it all probably really well. And I thought, who cares? (laughs) If you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit's in you, he can tell you what cultural rituals you're letting keep you from following Jesus. What are they? What are those issues in your heart and in your mind that the Spirit's revealing to you? What do you need to give up? What do you need to to spend less time doing so you can do more time in His Word? The other thing I thought about with this is what theological rituals are keeping me from following Jesus? Uh, Because when we don't take the time to do the study, bad theology pops up in our churches. Here's some examples. Christian subculture. The Bible says... God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that before? It's not in the Bible. There's the only problem with it. The Bible doesn't say it. Whoops, wrong. Uh, what about? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. And that means that uh, God's gonna help me know where to go to college, who to marry, and what career path to take. Problem with that is Jeremiah 29:11 wasn't written to you, it was written to the Israelites. So you can't claim that verse. You can't name it and claim it. It it doesn't work. My favorite one that all my atheist friends have memorized, this is their favorite verse. Do not judge lest you be judged. Every atheist knows that passage of scripture. The problem is they don't know a few verses later when it says that we're supposed to make accurate judgments. And if they just would have read a little more in the context, they would have come to know, oh no, we are supposed to judge. We need to take time to study Because it keeps us from bad theology. It helps us to follow the actual Jesus with what he actually said, not pop culture, not pop sub Christian culture, but what he actually said. And if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you gotta spend time in study because this book's not a fortune cookie. It's 66 books written by different people in different places, in different languages, in different cultural situations. And it takes a little bit of effort on your part to understand it and you know that you live in such a privileged time most of you are literate right any not literate i'm just kidding don't raise your hand on that you can read and write do you know how rare that is in the history of the world you have these tools at your fingertips you all in your pocket have a device that has more technology in it than will put people on the moon in 1969 do you know that The information's there. We've got it. Do you know, on my Logos Bible software, I can do something in 10 seconds that would have taken Martin Luther three years to do. No joke. And yet we don't do it. We we crack it open for two minutes and we read a proverb and we feel good about our life. It's a disservice to God's word. We need to study. Study to show yourself an approved workman. Who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Because if you don't, you will be ashamed and you won't know what you're talking about and your non-christian friends will ask you questions like why is the Bible pro slavery and you're not going to know how to answer that the Bible is not pro slavery that you you shouldn't be eating pork you shouldn't be eating shrimp why is homosexuality still bad according to scripture but you eat pig how are you gonna answer these things you see how it looks like nonsense and it's because we haven't done the work we have the tools we have the time We just need to do it. This year, 2021, set some time aside to study God's word. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It helps you to develop. It is enriching to your life. That's why he gave it to us. And we live in such a privileged time where we're able to do this. Buy an ancient Near East history book. Buy a survey of the New Testament so you can understand who wrote what book, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, who they wrote it to, what the big idea is. It's helpful in studying the book you are basing your eternal life on. Take time in 2021 to study.